Uh, we're going to turn to God's Word, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7 this morning, verses 31 through 37, as we've been uh, slowly going through the Gospel of Mark and looking at the, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, let's pray before we read. Uh, let's pray that God would uh, attend the reading of his word here and the preaching of it as well. Gracious God, you have given us this word to know you. You have revealed yourself clearly to us through it. And we come here this morning needing to hear from you. Allow us to listen. Would your spirit open our ears? But not just our ears and not just our minds, but our hearts also. Uh, give us a knowledge to, to know you and a heart to love you and a soul that has faith, deeper faith in you. We pray that Jesus would become better, more beautiful, and more believable to us than uh, he was before when we came in here. Uh, we pray that also for this, the same thing for the, the man preaching here, uh, that he would also uh, know that and see that here too. May your spirit be upon him as he preaches, because apart from your spirit, uh, no work is done. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray it for his sake. Amen. All right, in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, this is God's word. And then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Amen. Well, how many people do you think were healed in the New Testament? impossible for us to know, but we do know that it was an exceedingly great amount of people. The accounts that we have in the Gospels aren't even a handful. Uh, how many times can you think, if you've, if you've read or that we've seen in here, where it just says, and Jesus was up late into the night healing people, or and Jesus spent all day healing people. How many people do you think he healed? The, 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 the accounts that we have here are relatively few, the ones that actually gives a little bit more detail. And they're intended to make a point because each one is selective and each one here is given for theological importance, right? When you tell a story, you, you give the significant moments and the significant ideas in that story, don't you? 
there's a book that I had read uh, some time ago uh, all about memory. And many of us think about how memory uh, or the idea of photographic memory would be an incredible thing. Being able to remember everything that, you, that you've encountered, everything that you've read, every moment that you've lived. Wow, that must be incredible. But they say, no, actually, if you talk to people, most people who have a photographic memory, they think it's actually a curse. They think it's awful. I mean, for one thing... Every single wrong thing that you've done or every single bad thing that has happened in your life, you cannot forget it. But on top of that, if you can remember every single detail of every single day that you've lived, inevitably you have a difficult time thinking through what are the significant moments, the significant times, the significant details that have actually lived. They all just blur and blend together. See, when you tell your life story then... You give the significant moments, don't you? You give things like your birth, uh, the important dates, uh, the moments that have been integral to your story, to your personal development, to your maturation. And then even in those moments that you describe, you give the significant details. You don't say things like, well, the color of shoes I was wearing or I had this for breakfast. It's the significant things that matter. And it's the same with these when we read the, the healings and the, the miracles that are happening here in the Gospels. There's a significance to these ones that have been given to us here. Right? There's something that, 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 that the authors here and the divine author of, of God, the Holy Spirit, is getting at in here. They're designed to show us something significant about Jesus, his person, and his work. And something significant about the human response, about faith about love, about obedience. See, the focus here isn't just on the healing itself this morning here. The focus isn't just upon this man who could not hear and could not speak and being healed of it. There's something deeper that, was, that is uh, being gotten at here. And it's here also given now to demonstrate the magnificence, the beauty, the deeper majesty of Jesus' work. So we want to look at the man who was healed, but we don't want to just stop there. We want to look at the deeper significance of it. And that significance that we see here is that Jesus is renewing everything. That he is renewing the world, that he is turning everything upside down. But then he is renewing us so that we could, in response, then praise him. And so our main idea this morning is that Jesus is reversing all things from the curse doing so for real people and for the praise of his glory. And we're just going to break that down into three ideas, our three main points here. The first is that Jesus is reversing all things from the curse. He's reversing everything. What's the man's problem here that we see? What's his problem? Is it his inability to hear? Maybe his... The problem is that his inability to hear is also affecting his ability to speak. Or maybe he also has a speech impediment along with it here too. What's his main problem? Well, it's actually none of those. His main problem is the curse of sin. Now, not that he sinned and then brought this upon himself. That's not what we mean here. But the curse, though, that lies upon the whole world... And as a result of sin, and not just our sin, we're not talking about our individual sins, but Adam's sin. 
The very first sin of Adam, which then plunged the whole world into the fall, into the curse, into futility, into death, into suffering, all of these things. A world that was created in goodness here, yet sunk into the curse of sin and misery by the fall. See, life wasn't meant to be suffering. Life wasn't meant to be the way that we experience it right now. But that's how life is right now, though, isn't it? In fact, to the, to the degree that, that we cannot imagine life apart from this sort of suffering or of pain or of other physical things that we see. None of us has a context for life apart from the curse because curse affects every single one of us. It's all of our problem. It affects this man. The curse upon the world, a curse upon this man here, manifested itself through his deafness, through his inability to speak. And it's that same curse that lied upon him that lies upon every one of us here too. It affects every one of you. It touches every single one of you and myself here. What's the reason why your body is falling apart? What's the reason why your body is degenerating or your mind is degenerating? It's because of the curse. It's as a result of the curse of sin and the fall that lies on everything. And so Jesus' act, his healing that he has here is full of this theological weight though to it. Now curse is the backdrop. It's the context in which he was working his ministry. But as we read here this passage, that's only one of the contexts. That's in one sense a historical context that, we, that still bridges the gap to us here too. But there's also another context that's happening. And with this in mind, we look back to the words that we read this morning from our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 35. Because that forms another context for Jesus uh, healing this man. Do you remember what we heard from Isaiah 35 read? It's a great reversal of things. It's a reversal from the way that we th- know things right now into how God will reverse them into and remake them into beauty and life and flourishing. See what the curse turned into barrenness and wilderness. God someday will turn over. He will reverse and bring to flourishing and to life. Deserts into well-watered springs. In the desert and the wilderness, the flowers will blossom. The, the, the crocuses will sprout up and spring for joy. The wilderness, or the, the weak, the feeble, the anxious, they are the ones then who God will come down and will strengthen. And he will have them take heart because he is with them. He's reversing from fear and anxiety into strength. The lame will be leaping. The blind will be seeing, and what also was it that we read? The deaf uh, God will be reversing into being able to hear. And the, the mute, those who are unable to speak, those whose tongues are bound, will be, will be speaking and shouting and praising God with joy. See, we give significant details and moments in the stories that we tell. And Mark gives this particular healing and a special significance with this direct allusion to Isaiah 35. In fact, even the the word that we have here uh, in Mark for speech impediment, uh, the the word in the original language, it's it's a very rare word, and it's only used one other time. Actually, it's 
It's not even in the the Hebrew Old Testament, but it's in the the Greek translation of it, which is what they would have been operating off of. And that's the only other time that you see it. Mark is in a way, he's giving us a wink as he's writing this. Hey, how well do you know your Old Testament? Because this here, as Jesus is healing this man, I'm throwing something else out there. This is what God's going to do. This is what Jesus came to do. Salvation, the salvation that Jesus brings is a reversal of curse. It is a reversal of the ills and bringing it all into flourishing and bringing it into life. He is undoing everything that Adam's sin, all of the curse, everything that he brought upon us, and he is remaking it in his goodness. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam in later times in the New Testament, because he is taking the, the, the old work of the first Adam, undoing it, and then he is doing everything now to bring it back into life and flourishing and more abundant. He's doing everything where, where Adam could not bring life and he only brought death. He, Jesus, is doing everything so that the, the tree of life that was promised And the renewal and the goodness and everything from that is given to us. And that's shown here through his signs. All of the miracles of Jesus demonstrate this reversal. And ultimately, it's a reversal that is secured by the cross of Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus took the curse the curse of death that has come upon humanity. Jesus himself took the curse of sin, not just our own individual sins, but of Adam's sin, and particularly Adam's one sin, his first sin that brought everything into the fall. Jesus' cross is taking all of that upon himself to erase it, to leave it nailed up there, to have it be rid of and done away with. And if his... And if it was all secured by his cross, then that reversal is sealed by his resurrection. As Jesus was burst from the tomb as the first fruits of the reversal of death into life, into real time, space that walked among us and that still lives right now and is ascended at the right hand of God the Father, waiting to return and to reverse everything that we see, everything wrong all around us into goodness and life and flourishing. And we see this from his healing. But we don't just see what he's going to do, though, what he promises to do. We also see the desire and the heart that Jesus has for this as well. And we see that by the fact that in verse 34 it says he sighs. He looks up, he's standing before the man, he looks up to heaven, and he gives this sigh. Now, why did Jesus sigh? Was he tired? Was it a sigh of sadness? Was it because that he's seen this before and the unbelief of people and he is expecting this to happen again? But it's not just a, a mere sigh. It's a groan. It's a longing. It's the same idea that the Apostle Paul writes in several times in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. He talks about the, he is longing, his groaning, his sighing to put aside his mortal body, the body of this tent, and to put on his heavenly dwelling, right? And to be renewed physically in heaven with the Lord. 
It's the same idea that we read also in Romans 8 this morning in our New Testament reading. In Romans 8 verses 22 through 23 where the whole of creation is groaning. It's longing. It's sighing like in birth pains. Waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. Waiting for the renewal of all things for the for Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, to come and remake everything. It is groaning, sighing for that new one, to, that new creation to come in. And Jesus' sigh, his longing, his groaning, it expresses his longing, his desire for creation's release from the curse. He sees it in this man. He looks at this man here, the suffering of this man, and he groans. He longs for him to be set free from this. See, Jesus isn't stoic when he sees the curse upon the world. He's not a robot. Right? He's, he walked among us. He had this desire to, to release people from the curse. It was he longed to heal them. And friends, he has an emotiveness. Jesus isn't passive. He's not impartial as he sees people who being mired under the curse in the fallen world. And our sighs that we have, our longings, our groans are his too. We ours echo his. And he longs just as much as we do for it all to be set free from the curse. Because he created the world. He created it. And he, say, he hates to see the goodness of everything wrecked. He created and loves us. And he hates to see us also fall under the effects of the curse. And so he is looking with eagerness for the day when he returns and he sets it all free. When he can reverse everything with finality. And so healing this man here was a temporary sign of what he's going to do. It was a foretaste. This is what it's going to be like. This is what reversal looks like. It's like the deaf being able to hear. It's like those being unable to speak, being able to speak again. But see, the reversal though, even of the curse for this man wasn't complete. It was just a sign of it. It was just a foretaste because he still had other issues. I'm sure this man got sick. I'm sure he had other things happen to him. I'm sure he still got uh, aches and pains as he got older and, and cuts and everything else that happens along with us. But what Jesus is offering, though, here is the foretaste. He's dropping little samples of his goodness, the goodness that he's going to show to come here. And how good will the whole thing be? Well, hey, remember that foretaste? Remember that, that little sample I gave you? Oh, that's just a little piece of what it's going to be like because we really have no context for what it will be like any other way and so we have that jesus is reversing the curse but second though also jesus does so for real people jesus does so for real people so these aren't just theological ideas that we're talking about here it's not just this cosmic vision of the future it involves real people. And as theology and our visions and ideas of the future, especially as the Bible lays out for us, as they do involve real people. But all of this, we can't just think of it and compartmentalize it into the mind, but it affects real people. Jesus healed this man. We can't forget that. He healed this man. And so we can't just focus upon the grand idea without considering also individuals as well. Jesus came to reverse the curse. And who is under the curse? Us. All of us. It affects us. 
And so this is where hope is appropriated to real people. And Jesus here takes the big picture and he brings it down to us. And he shows us where we belong in the story. And it begins with the concern that Jesus has for this man. Jesus has concern for individuals, we see, as he speaks to this man. Jesus spoke to this man who was deaf and mute. Now, he didn't speak to him by his voice. It wasn't in the words that he said, Ephaphtha, be opened. He didn't speak by voice. He communicated to him in a different way. He takes him away alone from the crowd, and he communicates by sign language. He puts his fingers in his ears, saying, I'm going to release, I'm going to unstop your ears. He spits and touches his tongue. As disgusting as that might sound, (laughs) there is a point to it there. He spits and he touches his tongue. He says, I'm going to release your tongue from from being bound. And he looks up to God saying, this is going to be divine. What I'm going to do for you is, is divine. It's from God. And he sighs. He could see the visible heaving of his chest here of this compassion and saying, just wait what I'm going to do. Why does Jesus do this? Because he wants him to understand what he's about to do for him. He wants him to understand who is standing before him and who it is that is doing this. He wants him to understand that this is an act of God's mercy. And that's what healed him. And that this is now a, a, a foretaste of the renewal of God in this man's life, touching him. And this is ultimately going to point him to the Lord. It is going to point him to those promises of Isaiah 35. And he is getting this man to ponder who Jesus is. See, he is working here to instill faith within him. He wants him to know. He wants him to believe. And so when Jesus stands before him and he, and he sighs, he's also sighing for this man too. Not just sighing that, about the, all the suffering in the world, but he's sighing for the suffering that this man has right before him. See, suffering affects Jesus. Not just suffering in general, but suffering by individuals also. And the suffering and the curse of this man affected him too. And he groaned as he witnessed of what the effects of what the fall did to him. He sees this man being an image bearer, created with dignity, with, with joy, with respect, and yet brought low by the fall. What do you think that must have felt like for him? I mean, kids, how do you feel with all of your art projects, let's say? or your crafts that you make, or your Lego projects? How do you feel when those that you've built get wrecked? When you pour your heart and soul to it, when you use your imagination, maybe it takes a lot of time too, and then it gets wrecked. That feeling that you have is kind of like what Jesus feels. He feels the same way when he sees his creations, his image bearers that he's made get wrecked and ruined by the fall. And he wants the world to be renewed. He wants individuals to experience that. And he cares not just for the big picture, but he cares for the individuals who are in that story too. He cares for real people. And he sighs. He longs to set his people free from the curse someday. He longs to set you free from the curse someday. And the promise here, and this here is the promise that his sigh is that promise that you have as in those times when you feel acutely the fall 
and the, the curse, those moments there. It is his commitment to you that he will make all things new and he will be there and he, will, and he is speaking to you the reversal that he will give you someday. See, the curse isn't the status quo and neither is your suffering. That's not the intended way of life. It's life, though, that has been warped beyond repair. All of the aches that you feel, the pains, the memory loss, the the degeneration of our bodies that we feel as we age, none of that is natural. Birth defects, disorders, uh, diseases, none of those are natural. Disabilities, dysmorphias that we might feel. None of that is natural. None of this is normal. In fact, it is the most abnormal thing, even though it's part of our everyday experience. And belief that says otherwise, any belief that says otherwise, that this is just normal, that's actually not hope. Any time that we accept those things as normal, rather than an abnormality of life, it denies the hope that we have. And it is, there's a difference between learning to live with the abnormality and then actually accepting it and saying that it's normal. And so all of your hurts, all of your diseases, all of your, your, de- your de- de- degenerative effects, all of your disabilities you may have, that don't have, those don't have the final say. And they will never have the final say upon you because that's not what you were created to experience and that will someday all be, be done away with as Jesus brings about his great reversal. You know, there's going to be no doctors in heaven. There's going to be no nurses, no medical providers, no doctors in heaven. I don't say that here because I know there are a bunch of uh, medical providers. I don't say that no doctors or nurses or medical providers will ever make it to heaven. I'm married to a doctor. Um, It's not because they won't make it, but it's because the role will be unnecessary. And you know why? Because the great physician lives there. And every time you are hurt, every time you ache, every time that you are sick, long for Jesus, groan and sigh just as he does. And our faith in that, our faith in those times is an act of rebellion. It is an act of rebellion against the status quo of that we might think of, of uh, the suffering and the curse. Because we are acknowledging that the curse, we are acknowledging that the darkness will pass away and it is defeated by Christ Jesus the Lord. But third then, Jesus doesn't just take this for individuals, but Jesus does so third to the praise of his glory. He does so to the praise of his glory. He heals the man here. He looses his tongue. A man who was first unable to speak, but now is able to shout. Who's now able to sing. Who's now able to speak with his joy. Again, the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. That's the response to redemption. The singing, the, the life. The happiness. This here is the re- that we read here too is the response to redemption. To the fact that those who are watching and witnessing this, they can't contain themselves. What do they say? He's done all things well. And they go out and they proclaim Jesus even when he tells them, hey, just be careful. Don't, don't spread everything about me right now because I'm, I have a specific purpose right now. But nothing can stop them. 
They're astonished. They're overwhelmed by his work. See, there is a doxological purpose to God's redemptive drama. In other words, what God does in redemption is to the praise of his glory. And it begins with his people, the recipients of his redemptive work. And in Christ, we have been brought into this story here. And we have been given, and we give God glory for him writing the narrative and for bringing us as actors into it. See, why does God save and redeem people? What's the priority of his redemption? Is it his love for us? Is it his compassion? I mean, certainly those are all true. Love and compassion that God has upon us, as we've just seen here, with the size that Jesus has. But the priority, though, isn't just us. It's not in what we receive. The priority isn't in what we experience. The priority of our redemption is God. It's his glory. He saves us from all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end, and all of it for his glory, for the praise of his name, for his majesty, for his glory to be spread and proclaimed and and demonstrated worldwide. The purpose of redemption is praise. To be his people who have been brought from death into life and are now able to sing his praise. He redeems us in order that we might be free. And he redeems us in order that we may praise him. He frees us to praise him. And he frees us and gives us a new life so that we might then worship him also. Because everyone worships, don't they? We worship what it is that we hold dear. Worship flows from the heart. It's what flows from the heart. That shows what we worship And more than words that we say, more than the acts which follow, it comes, though, from a deep part from within. It comes from a mind that understands. It comes from a will that follows. And it comes from the passions which are moved. And as God redeems us in Christ, he puts us back together. Our minds begin to comprehend the grace, the beauty, and the goodness of God. Our wills are begin to be inclined towards him and we are moved to listen and obey. And our passions and our emotions are engaged to begin to drive us towards him. And though our tongues may still be broken as our bodies are, as we may still feel that, we can still sing in the ways that we can and that come from deep within us. And we sing oriented towards who we will be someday. Yet who we already are, the redeemed of God, those whom the curse has no final say. The broken musical instruments make broken, out-of-tune sounds. I read this week of a story a few years ago in Philadelphia's school, in a school district in Philadelphia in their, their, their music program. And they had found, stored away a total of 1,500 broken musical instruments that needed repair. And so to raise awareness and and to get some funds to start repairing some of those and cycle them in so that that kids who couldn't afford an instrument could start playing and being involved in band and symphony there, the director wrote a symphony involving some of those broken instruments. All the dented horns, uh, the, the instruments that had missing keys, uh, the the bu- busted slides, broken bridges, every, every, you know, you name it there. 
And they, they played it. I listened to some of the warm-ups, and I have to say, it was some of the most out-of-tune, pained sounds. It was frustration, right? Not just frustrating as you're listening to it, but you could tell it was frustration from the, those who were playing it. And some of the people they had playing this symphony were actually from the, Phil- the Philadelphia Symphony. <laughs> and they're having to make these broken, beaten-up instruments get some sort of sound. But see, when broken instruments are repaired... That's when they can make beautiful music, though, isn't it? When they're fixed up, when they're tuned, when they're filled then with breath and life, and the songs that begin to come out of them, that sweet, those sweet tones, it's a testament to their renewal, and it's a testament to the one who repaired them, who mended them. And see, experiencing renewal in Christ puts us back in tune because we're no longer broken instruments. We've been healed and put back together. We have that promise. And our dings are put back into shape. Uh, Our broken keys are restored. We have our drum heads tightened up again. We have uh, strings that are put back on the bows and the violins. The reeds are replaced. And then new life, new breath fills us. As, as, as through a horn or a flute sounding its notes. It's the new breath that comes from the Spirit within us. And our bodies may still be broken. And our full rest, restored selves, though, are laid up in heaven with Christ. And until then, though, until that day when all is fully restored, when all is fully reversed, until that day our souls, though, right now are alive and they are sounding the notes from within here carried by the Holy Spirit. But see, the best music isn't just a solo. The best music is with parts and with harmonies. Different tones, different sounds, harmonizing parts, layering over each other here. And when they're played together, they sound even better. They create a more full, a complex sound. See, none of this here, this idea of, of reversal, of renewal, isn't individualistic. It's not who fixed me. It's who fixed us. But we're also, though, not just repaired and mended, but we're also, though, given a new song, too. Jesus altered the trajectory of this man's life. He brought him from curse into redemption. And not with just this, merely this ability to sing, but he gave him a new song to sing. We've been fixed and redeemed to play beautiful music and God gives us a new song. He gives us a better song than the old songs that used to, to, to come from our hearts and come from our lives. And that, the songs that we used to pray, play with our broken selves and our broken instruments. All the old songs of our former lives might be different genres. They might, be, they might all sound different, but no matter what, they're all, other than being, being played on all broken instruments, of our own selves. What you know what all those songs, our own individual songs, all have in common? Me. Us, ourselves. All of our songs naturally are about ourselves. They have ourself at the center. And there's a song though here. That's a song that just doesn't fit though with an instrument that's renewed by Jesus. The focus is all wrong. Because Jesus restores us. He He takes us in our broken state. He mends us. He puts us back together. And then he gives us a new song to play. He gives us new music, new sheet music, music that puts him at the center. 
Music that lifts up him and his grace to the praise of his glorious name. Music that is way more beautiful than our old songs and lifts up a much better subject than what we sang about before. And it's a song that will last, that will last way beyond this life as we all in Christ will play together into life everlasting, free from the curse upon the world and renewed in our whole selves. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, the everyday maladies and the broken bodies that we have, they are overwhelming. The pains, the aches, the questions that we have in those two. And so please then we ask that you would deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Deepen our trust in him that we would be able to look past just a simple uh, the things that, that, we, that we experience in this life and look and long for the renewal and the reversal of the curse and of all things in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would make that more real to us because it is difficult for us to remember that when our bodies hurt so much or when we are so frustrated by our inabilities or the disabilities we might feel or the diseases that come upon us and the things that just will not leave Lord, those can seem so real to us, but make the renewal of Jesus more real to us in those times. And in those moments then too, let us, let us sing. Give us, give us a desire to sing to you, to sing praise, knowing what it is that we have to come. And let us sing with joy the song that you've given to us rather than our old songs. Prepare us as we come to your table in this time in Jesus' name. Amen.